This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Hello and welcome to the Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. As a therapist for the last 17 years or so and having worked intensively in grief and trauma and with families and young people, I have a particular interest in stories of overcoming challenges and turning them into triumphs. Now, no one has done that quite like this week's guest, Blair James. Blair has experienced immense family tragedies throughout his life, from periods of poverty and the loss of the family home to the death of both his parents at a young age. And in spite of these devastating losses, Blair used these experiences to propel him into success, becoming the co-founder of self-tanning giant Bondi Sands. Blair's passion for his business and his undeniable resilience is an inspiration. And I know that anyone who might be wondering how they're going to move past their own personal difficulties will find this conversation particularly encouraging. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. People might know you as one of the co-founders of the iconic brand Bondi Sands. You've had a really interesting journey. You've had highs and lows and I'd really love to get into some of that stuff with you today so people can hear how you got to be so successful at such a young age and what you've had to endure to get there. Yeah, sounds good. You were born in Melbourne, weren't you? I was born in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. My dad's from the UK, was from the UK, sorry, I was born in Birmingham, so I had a Brummie accent until I was about 14. <laughs> yeah, which uh, isn't fun at Australian primary school, but yeah, born here, mum was from here. You went over to the UK when you were quite young. How old were you when you went over? Uh, I was about seven, seven or eight when we first went over there. I literally just started school here. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was a big shift, didn't want to go. I remember throwing a tantrum around the house saying, not going. <laughs> then we yeah made the move over there and I said my dad was from there and he just retired and wanted to get back over there and end up staying four years. So it just kind of happened and yeah, ended up being one of the best experiences of my life and something I still still remember so clearly and fond memories. You're going to the UK as a seven-year-old thinking, okay, it's just three months and then I'll be back to all my mates and back to the routine. That's right. <laughs> but it wasn't quite that. No, it was, you know, we got there and saw an opportunity for a business, which is mindset. Obviously, that's where it comes from had this idea about a store over there called Things Australian, importing Australian products. So he was one of the first people to import RM Williams to the UK, bringing over riding gear and oil skins and that type of thing. So it's really, I find it very coincidental or ironic now that my dad was importing Australian products back then to the UK and now we own the biggest Australian self-tanning brand in the UK. So some similarities there. And so you've just been through scary times of starting school for the first time here in Australia, and then you've had to do it all over again. Do you remember that? I do remember it very well. It was such a big part of my life. I grew up in the country. I lived in a small town called Flowerdale, which is up near King Lake. Primary school that I'd spent you know, a year or two at, we had 65 kids in the whole school. So to move from that to the UK, brand new school where there was thousands of kids. Yeah. It, was, it was very confronting. 
Took to it very quickly, enjoyed the English schooling system, made friends very quickly, being a bit of a novelty, being like, yeah, you're the British Midlands and yeah, you're the only Aussie at the school, people (laughs) want to know who you are. And you've told this story a few times, but I think it's really telling in terms of how early that entrepreneurship started. But there's a little story about you selling a product of your dad's without his permission. Can you you share that story for us? Yeah, so anybody who knows me knows that I love two things. I love my watches and I love cars. I've always been like that, I always wanted to get into cars racing and I always loved the watches and all that sort of stuff so I came across a calculator watch that I wanted it was 11 pound and we didn't have a lot of money then because my dad had obviously put everything into the business and to be honest the business didn't do so well if you're losing money in the UK it's losing three Australian dollars for every pound so we were going backwards pretty quickly so there wasn't a lot of spare money I remember walking through his store and asked him for the watch and he's like no we can't afford it or whatever and I found all these boxes of Vegemite and peanut butter and all this stuff and I was like oh well he's not going to sell it in the store it's a clothing store I'm selling riding like saddles and stuff he's not going to sell sell that so I cut up one of the boxes and made a little shelf for myself and put all the stock on them and labeled them all a pound which is very expensive for Vegemite and peanut butter back in 88, 89 and then walked down the shopping center where my dad's store was selling this product and I sold the whole lot in like a couple of hours pretty hard to say no to an 8 year old walking in trying to sell (laughs) um, Vegemite so I made myself it was about 33 pound I think all up and so I went and bought myself the watch walked back in and showed my dad the watch and he's like where'd you get the money for that and I was like well I went and sold your stock and he's like you can't sell my stock and he he thought it was pretty funny gave me a bit of a hard time about it but he saw the funny side of it gave him back what was left effectively made him 22 pound so he was pretty happy with that I do look back at that time a lot. It really created that belief in my mind that if I wanted something, there's an opportunity there to get it. Pretty much approached life ever since like that. There's a lot of stories like that growing up where it was just like we didn't have a lot of money. So it was like, okay, what am I going to do? I need to go and create money from somewhere to get these things that I'd like that the other kids had. So what what other kinds of things did you get up to? The other thing that I love is basketball and I love love shoes. Growing up in basketball, you always had to have the new shoes. My parents didn't have the money to keep buying me new shoes all the time. But my mum said to me, if you can get half the money for the next pair, I'll put the other half in. And I was like, the worst thing she could have ever said. Because <laughs> straight away, I was just, right, okay, I can, make, I can get this money. So when I had a pair of shoes, I would treat them like gold. I'd only wear them on the basketball court straight after the game. I'd get myself a little glass of water, uh, warm water uh, with nifty spray and wipe and I'd literally clean them with that toothbrush, soles and all. They were spotless always. Wow. Then I would sell them to the kids at school. Once the season was over and I was like, no, I want the new ones, I'd take them to school and say, mum, we bought them for $160. I would take them to the kids at school and they'd go, you can have these for 100 They're literally brand new. Wow. And I did that all through high school with shoes. I would have sold 10, 15 pairs of shoes and literally I'd just trade them back in for a oh new pair. Oh my God, that's brilliant. So everyone thought I had lots of shoes, but literally I only really had the one or two pairs yeah. that were just being moved on. That's so brilliant because you're not only learning the value of money and earning money and making money, but you're also valuing your things. The way my kids treat their stuff, they're only three and a half and 18 months. Yeah might as well be dirt on the street so that sense of responsibility was obviously instilled in you quite young i'm still the same today like if if i buy something that means something to me like again it's treated like gold so whether it be my cars or shoes or whatever it is they're the things i really love they're spotless i give my fiance a hard time because she doesn't look after her stuff (laughs) but yeah now still the same 
if you tie that back to a business sense, if you're creating something, there's an attention to detail which comes along with looking after something like that and maintaining it. And I guess you sort of look at that from a brand standpoint as well. It's just like you're so protective of what that is and you want to make sure it remains what you've set it out to be. So do you think that's a product of the environment or like the situation that you were in as a family? Or do you think that was instilled in you because of your parents and who they were? My fiance and I talk a lot about this because she thinks that times I'm a little neurotic with things <laughs> like, <laughs> like that. And I had a very unusual upbringing in terms of when I was quite young. So I was born into a very successful family. My dad was an engineering manager at Ford Motor Company. He'd done very well and we were very comfortable. And then, as I mentioned before, when he retired, we moved to the UK. He lost everything. We lost the family home. I remember we couldn't even afford to have the phone on. So mum went back to work and she used to buy me a $5 phone card so I could call her. So we literally went from having everything we needed to borderline poverty. Mum went back to work. She was earning about $300 a week. Wow. That's what we were living on with a family of five. I'd experienced what it had been like to have everything you need and seeing the world and doing those things and then having them all gone. You either curl up and go, well, this is my life now. I'm not going to have those things. But for me, it was about, no, I want these things not having money definitely builds a certain character where you look for opportunities and you look to create things for yourself you see that trend a lot in people that have been successful with building their own businesses and it teaches you to be scrappy it might not be the ideal situation but you get things moving even though it was a tough time it was it's one of the things i look back on as valuable to my upbringing and has allowed me to do this later in life I think a lot of people always thought that we came from money Mm -hmm. and it was things that just handed when I opened my salon in Port Melbourne. I heard rumors of people saying, oh, his mum and dad bought him that salon or I was like, "Mm, no, not really. Like I literally worked this nine till nine, seven days a week for three months. And when it opened, it it had like $180 left. So it was literally, it was my everything. So again, you're in there every day, you're cleaning the floors. First thing in the morning before anyone gets there, you're cleaning the entire salon, you're doing all the things that you expect a casual staff member to do, but you can't afford them. So you need to do it. So it also builds a work ethic because you don't expect anybody else to do the work for you. All those things come from that struggle and look back at it now and almost grateful for that exposure to that type of life that I had. The hardship started when you're in the UK. What was the decision around coming back to Australia? It was about three, three and a half years, I think, before we decided had to come back. Mum went back to work. So she hadn't worked since she had three kids. So she started doing some reception work in the UK just to pay bills. She decided that it was too hard. Cost of living in the UK was huge. The house that we had tenants in in Australia, our family home, actually been really badly looked after. She came back and brought me back to sort that out and get those tenants out and look to move back into that home. So my dad stayed in the UK to wind up that business. We were separated for about six months. So I was living here with mum, with my auntie for a little while, and then mum was able to rent this tiny little house in Eltham, which I drive past every now and then. It's literally like one bedroom and we were sleeping on a rubber foam mattress by that time. So in the space of four years, we'd gone from being able to travel business class to the UK to now sleeping on a rubber mattress on the floor. We lived there for about six months and then my dad finally joined us back here in Australia. We were able to get back into our family home and it was a disaster. Like it was so overgrown and my mum and dad built that house. So it was going back in and just seeing it trashed was just heartbreaking. And I think my dad's spirit didn't recover from that. Yeah, difficult time. He just didn't have that spark after that. So mum had to take over the reins. She was really looking after the family, but it wasn't enough to keep the house. We lost that in 93. And that was, yeah, that was starting high school and all that stuff. So yeah, really tough time. Oh, Blair, this is like... (laughs) 
It's so much more than I imagined. It's not just, okay, losing the material things, but it's the heart and soul of the family being crushed blow after blow after blow. Like, you know, kids are pretty resilient. You were probably Mm. just like, okay, this sucks. But your mum as a parent... Mum never looked like anything else, but she was having the time of her life. Such a, a strong person. And it does give you that inspiration to be the same. I can look back and now and I wouldn't change any of it. Mum and Dad, they were great parents. They, they gave us everything. We didn't have you know, material things, but you just always felt loved. You always felt like you were their everything. And that's all you can ask for. Yes, we didn't have the money and all that sort of stuff, but had everything else. So yeah. I don't know how... I, I look back at how Mum did it, I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. And how she did it, putting that face on. Remarkable. Incredible. Yeah, it says a lot about your parents as people and as parents to be able to push through all of that. Once you were back in the house, did things kind of settle back into a more normal place for you guys as a family? No, it was just a, it was just a constant progression of things getting worse. Oh, to be no. honest, as my dad sort of lost his spark after that, and I think he was the confidence was gone. He was an older dad by this stage; he was his mid sixties, so struggling to get back in the workforce. He didn't have a car at one point, so he's literally walking everywhere. And so it got progressively worse. And then got to the point where we lost the house. We couldn't afford that. So we moved up to Ye, which is a small country town, 1,100 people. And we were renting a house and that was another step down. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, now it's another step down that we accepted. Things felt like they were the same for probably maybe two, three years. You know, I started high school. Most of my high school years, I, yeah, it was it was a struggle though. It was literally yeah, living on just mum's way. She would work in Melbourne through the week. She'd drive down on a Sunday night and then she'd come home on a Friday night and spend the weekend with us. That was the only way that she could make ends meet and she didn't want to move me again. Yeah. So again, it's that sacrifice that my parents made. It was just everything they did was for me. That was really what high school was like up until year 12 when my dad passed away. So that was just that another step. So you were in year 12 at the time. There were three kids. What number child um, are you? So I'm the youngest. And so my older brother and sister, they're from mum's first marriage. Okay. So they were half brother and sister. Okay. But they grew up as my dad as their dad. So we were always just, yeah, three kids. So I was the youngest. And there was a big age difference, about eight years okay. between us. So they'd finished high school and, and moved on to university and everything else by that stage. But then in year 12, in July, my dad, he had a heart attack overnight. And was just gone like that. Each one of these steps you just accept and, okay, well, that's the next one now. Like, what's the next bit? How can it get any worse How can it get any worse? Yeah. 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 Mm. I also lost a parent. I lost my mum very suddenly as well, just out of nowhere. I understand what that is like reeling from the loss and the shock and everything but having already had so many things to adjust to what was that like for you and your mum at that point uh, again i don't know how mum did it she didn't break down she cried at the funeral but that was it I went back to a job and basically negotiated i can't be down here i need to be up there with my son set up a home office and did that and she said we just need to get you through year 12 and then we'll move down to the city but as a family we still always talk about how mum did that just went and did it it was a really tough time obviously again it was one of those things i look back on and think would i change it i'd love to have my dad here but it changed me as a person changed my direction of where i was going in life and how i thought about the world like i thought about everything i had to do had to almost be like a direct tribute to my dad and i was making decisions to take me down the lines of things that he would like as opposed to who i was as a person i chose university degrees to go into because of what he would have liked it's not what i wanted to do and it took me a number of years before i realized 
realized that like I'm not living my life. I knew who I was when I was six and seven when I was creating these things and selling products and that's who I was. I did read a few studies around how loss like that, the grieving that you go through after the number of years afterwards, and they can they talk about taking five years or so to actually start maturing again. And I, th- I thought that was crazy, but I look back at it now and it really was that. I felt numb for a number of years after that. And it, like I said, it was only like 26, 27 where I, who I was started to come back through again. Weirdly, so many of my guests who are really successful, well-known people have lost one or both parents at a young age. The theme that I've seen across it and in my own experience is that really it's about 10 years before you're really out of the fog and the grip of it all. I think it was probably two years where it was still impacting me on a, on a daily basis. I didn't really know what depression was back then. I think I probably had some of it. I used to find myself just not being motivated, and which was never something for me as a kid. Like I was always wanting to do something and only just getting past that. And then mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So it was like, yeah, that, that's that next step. So it honestly felt like from about 12 through to 23, it was just constant just one thing after another. You don't think about it when it's happening, like all these things, all these things that happened to me. As I am recently when I started seeing a psychologist and I just felt like I had to get a lot of this stuff off my chest and I still can't talk about it without crying. And I don't ever want to. Absolutely. I, I, want, I want to feel like that connection to my parents. Yeah. And so it was only through that process where I, I thought to myself, that's a lot. <laughs> and it took someone else to actually, like the psychologist actually said to me like, that's a lot of turmoil in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really only started to take that on board two, three years ago. Well, again, there's that resilience that you just keep going. Your parents showed you, you just keep going. Things are tough. You keep smiling, you get through it. Yeah. Most people, one or two of those things would have knocked them off their feet and that'd be it. But it Mm. seems to have served like a really good purpose for you in terms of your drive and your motivation and pushing you to be the best version of yourself. Yeah, I look back at it and... My fiance listens to these stories over and over because I have times where it comes back and at times I can't talk about it. It does make me very upset still, but she'll sit there and listen to it over and over and over. But one thing we did talk about is at that time, there was no other direction in mind. No, no, I'm going to get through it. Just get through the next day. What's next? What's next? There was never a thought of, I'm just going to give up. It would have been quite acceptable to just not do anything and go down another path. Could have very easily ended up homeless Mm. at the time. Both parents gone, living on my own for the first time at 23, working in retail, not earning a lot of money. Yeah, it could have been very easy to to go down that path. Not saying it was a courageous move or what I did was courageous. It just it just wasn't. I just didn't think about it, and I didn't realize like how much that risk was there. It scares me looking back to me like it it could have been very easy to go down that path. Absolutely. Did you have much family here or any adults in your life helping you through those losses? My brother and sister, they were there to a degree, lost their own lives and their, their own grief at that time as well. My auntie Andrea, was she'd call me and actually her voice was exactly the same as my mum, so that used to really help. And that was probably it at that at that point. It's so much for a young person to be dealing with. Understanding what the loss is like when you lose one parent, but then to be so young and have lost both. So how did you start moving forward through all of that? When mum was sick, my brother and I didn't want her to keep working to pay rent and everything else. So we built, we decided to build a house for her and that was out in Doreen, so you know, north of the suburbs. And so we built that home for her. And then after she passed away, we decided to sell the house. My brother decided to sell the house. I then moved to Port Melbourne. I was on my own for the first time. 
kind of just had to just get moving. It was the same as every other step. It was kind of like, okay, this has happened. Oh, I need to do this though. I threw myself back into just getting on with life and making sure someone lived and I had a job, so I need to make sure I kept that. And it just kept going again. Around 26, 27, where I had a bit of a panic attack. It was just like a brick wall. I was like, nah, I can't, just can't do that anymore. And that was the first time I spoke to a psychologist and she was like, have you actually ever spoken to anyone about the grief and, and worked through any of that? And I was like, just haven't, haven't done it. So that really helped and I think that was that trigger to start talking about it and, and understanding how I felt about it and yeah, just kept pushing through until I couldn't anymore. Mm. And then yeah, had that discussion with the psychologist which definitely helped. You got out of survival mode and creeping towards thriving. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. And I opened the salon in Port Melbourne, that was 2006, I was 26. And that was when mum passed away, she left me a small amount of money, $30,000 to go into that. Yeah, that was that entrepreneur trigger again, which I'd forgotten that I was that person. And then once I started doing that, I felt like that buzz of creating something and moving forward and having that control. I'd had 13 years of my life being out of my control and it was just one thing after another where I felt, no, I can create this now and I can I can start getting control of, of my life. So that was a real turning point for my life, opening that salon. Did you have any concept at that point of what kind of an income that might be for you? Because I'm just wondering if people are listening who are thinking like, I'd love to just create something for myself. And we know that Bondi Sands is stratospheric in terms of how well that's going. But yeah. when you started with the salon, was that just like, I need an income and I want to work for myself? I never think about money. I never think about what something's going to be worth to me or where it's going to be. I wanted my own business because I wanted to create something and that's what I enjoy. I always look at money as a byproduct, whether that's right or wrong. I'm sure CFOs and accountants out there <laughs> go, oh, geez, I don't know about that. But yeah. everything I've done, money has been a byproduct and I just wanted that salon to be as good as it could be. And when I was running that, I'd probably earn maybe $150,000 a year, okay. which is pretty good money. It's really good money, yeah. Yeah, but for the first three years, I paid myself $15 an hour and I did to make enough money because I was partners with my brother. So I couldn't just take money out of the business because it was half his. So I did all the hours because I needed those hours to pay my rent and to live. And even that, when you're doing 70 hours a week, not a lot of money, no. by the time you take out tax and everything else. So I did that for three years. The business didn't make a profit for three years. So there was three, four years of struggle with that business, but I loved it. I loved being in it. I loved talking to the people. I liked the relationships I built and learning about running a business. Even a small one like that, you learn a lot. And until I was ready for the next stage and it was only 2008 by the time I hit 28 29 then I started thinking about oh I could earn I could open more of these or I could create my own products and I watched a DVD which a lot of people probably think is a load of rubbish and it was tacky and all that stuff but I watched The Secret and I just started thinking that that way obviously thinking about manifestation of your thoughts and just thinking in a positive way and visualizing things and that was another turning point for me where I just started thinking differently when you start thinking differently like that you start building belief in yourself and one thing leads to another it doesn't happen overnight but it, it does eventually amazing mm. So when you started triggering that burning creativity, where did you get the idea to start making a self-tanning product? Probably around 2009. So I've been in the salon for three years. It wasn't just self-tanning I was thinking about. At the time, Australia was going through a lot of pretty bad drought and I think our water reserves were down to like 39, 40%. And so I started thinking about, well, why can you have smaller fashionable designer water tanks for people that are in townhouses or something where you can plant your plants around and actually make it part of your garden and, mm. and everything else. And so that was one idea I thought about doing. Yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about water tanks. 
I was working on another product with my best mate, Michael Dyson, and he had this idea about protective cover for a ute uh, utility. So builders driving their expensive utes, don't damage them on the work sites. We created this product called Ute Armor. Found a manufacturer for it. This is my first probably shot at m manufacturing a product and okay. branding something. Yeah. And we presented that product to Ford Motor Company because um, I thought it was a perfect aftermarket sale for a when they sell a ute. And they asked for an exclusive in the first meeting on this product. That was going into a time where, and that, like, we literally couldn't believe it. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. That was going to the time when Ford were going backwards though. They were in really bad financial trouble. The department we were working with was like their customer service division. So it was all the aftermarket products. That whole department got sacked during that. So yeah. literally that opportunity just disappeared. And so that was, yeah, a big disappointment. And then we tried Autobahn, Repco, trying to go through the automotive trades like that. And our cost of goods was way too high because it was here in Australia. So again, it was all just a learning curve and understanding cost of goods, what retailers need, what the margins need to be. And then Bondi came along. So Bondi was started as a spray tan solution, first of all. It was running almost the same time as Udama. Michael Dyson was also involved in Bondi at the time. And yeah, we started working on this spray solution formula in 2009. The reason we chose Bondi was that we wanted something that was an Australian position product, but I didn't want it to be typical Australian bronze or Australian yeah. whatever. It needed to be something that was iconically Australian. And growing up, I played basketball in America at one stage. And I remember just speaking to Americans and they were just like so obsessed with this bronze dozzy. That really stuck with me. So I thought if we're gonna create a tanning brand, let's design it for the United States. And the Australian branding, Market Bondi Beach, that was the perfect positioning for a self-tanning brand. So that was really the positioning of Bondi was there from the very beginning. It was one of the drivers for what we wanted the brand to be. Amazing. Uh, still is. And yeah, that's that process was two years from, I guess, early development of product spray solution through to a marketable product that we took to Priceline. Did I read somewhere that early on there was a little bit of an issue with the <laughs> <Yeah>. solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like this wasn't our fault. Yeah. <laughs> we, we look back on it now and it was, people think, oh, what did you do wrong? But it wasn't really our fault. We were very early on. I think we were about 18 months in. It might have been even earlier than that. And we only had two products in the, in the range. We had our aerosol spray and we had a lotion. And yeah, product in market was turning green. Uh, <laughs> so stability, generally when you create a product, the manufacturer puts it through stability and they sign off, yes, it's a stable product. Yeah. For some reason, something went wrong. We believed it was maybe in the, the batch that was made, potentially some DHA, the active ingredient in soft tanners, was passed as used by date, potentially might've been turning. When you create those products, it's actually a, a hot, solution that you create so anything that's like bordering on being going off that heat will accelerate that our product we talk about being blue and green dye base so it was very interesting people were like saying oh i've got this product that's green and we're like oh okay this is this is, this is blowing <laughs> up pretty quickly we were able to rectify the situation we communicated to our distributors and our retailers and saying this is we owned up this is what's happened but what was what we didn't anticipate was really funny after that we fixed the product people were buying the new product which is the right color and everyone's like why isn't it green anymore it's supposed to be green dye base like where'd the green product go <laughs> yeah it's kind of interesting that story but incredibly nerve-wracking yeah. at the time when you everything you have and like sold the business to go into that sean my business partner borrowed against his house to actually get the business off the ground and then that happens it's nerve-wracking still probably one of the biggest challenges we've had 
Is there some kind of insurance for that kind of a situation or do you actually lose money? There are insurances you can you can get. We didn't know about it back then. We were just starting out. Okay. <laughs> so we, we definitely, we were able to claim a lot of it back from the manufacturer. Like I said, it, it was in our fold as a brand. Mm-hmm. So it was, we were able to you know get some credits back on that and get new stock through and get that to market. So uh, we were able to rectify the situation <laughs> pretty well considering. Yeah. But it's all, learning, it's all a learning curve. And going like, like we were talking about before, you go through stresses like that, Next time something stressful happens, you're able to remain calm with it and work through the situation instead of panicking and making rash decisions. How quickly did you start seeing a profit from the product? Bondi has been, people talk about unicorn brands and I do think that, not that Bondi quite has the billion dollar valuation yet, but it is one of those rare brands that even first year we were able to break even. Yeah, that's really unheard of. Most brands looking at three years, 18 months, three years where you're going to turn a profit. And I, you know, I look back at what that brand was when we launched and we set that up on a shoestring. Like it was, I think maybe the first run of product, it may have got up and running for like around 30 $35,000. Wow. It was, it was quite low. You know, we did a lot of the work ourselves. We were instructing all the designers and just had a mate who was a graphic designer and telling me, oh, I want to look like this and blah, blah, blah. And we were making decisions on packaging. We didn't know any, we didn't know any about wow. anything like that. So when we launched the brand, I honestly believe that when we first launched our brand, it didn't look as polished as it does today. And it was a good thing because we didn't look like a big multinational. But our product was better than everybody else's. And I think a lot of our consumers who stumbled across that little brand that had three facings on the Priceline shelf in 2012 <laughs> were like, I'm going to give it a go. It's well-priced. It's a lot of product. They tried it. They felt like they were stumbling on their little Aussie secret. Yeah. And I think that was that's the most powerful marketing you can ever have. And someone recommends it to someone else, how good that product is. That was one of the reasons why the brand really took off from day one. Because it just looked like that little, little Aussie battler that created a great product. And they were able to build from there. Was it hard to get it into the stores to begin with? How did that all go? We were actually looking at working with a, an agent, pay them a retainer every month and they try to sell your product in, you pay the commission on what they sell. They were using a company in Sydney that were doing some of their merchandising for them and they gave us this company as a to do a, a reference on, to see if they're any good. My business partner at the time, Michael Dyson, who's you know, no longer in the business, he actually called this reference and it was our current distributor that we were making contact with, we were still with them today. And they said, what's the product that you're producing? And we're like, he told them that the product, it's Australian physician self-tan. He goes, oh, you probably should be talking to us. A week later, we flew up and saw them. And yeah, they really bought into our vision from day one. Again, you know, the brand didn't look as polished as it does today. They had strong relationships with the retailers. But we did have the first retailer we went into, which I won't name, was a very interesting initiation into selling a brand into a retailer. There was literally no interest in the brand. I think the only question I was asked was if I was a footballer. And, <laughs> and I was like, no. And then we were asked to leave the room. So oh it was a very God. it was a very interesting wow. initiation into building a brand. <laughs> yeah. We presented to Priceline after that and they saw the potential of the brand and it was I think they could see the the passion we had in what our formulas were and why they were different and, and where we wanted to take this brand. And we did have a grand view vision mm. from day one. So they were our exclusive retailer for a number of years in Australia and owe a lot of gratitude to Priceline. They a great partner and still are, still our number one retailer globally. We were with some bigger partners around the world now and we're in more stores, but Priceline still outsell them. Yeah, interesting first year. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think either of us, Priceline ourselves, when we first launched there, I don't think we ever thought that it would get to where it is where we're pushing 60% market share in Australia now. My God, that's massive. Mm. 
Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. The other thing that's really interesting about your business is I think you were like one of the really early adopters of social media marketing. Was that driven by you guys as well? Like how did you get that whole thing off the ground? I think a lot of it is just paying attention to where you are at the time. We definitely didn't have the crystal ball to say, oh, look, by 2018, influencer marketing is going to be the only way to build your brand. Mm. It was a steady rise. We had at the time when we were launching the brand, we didn't have a lot of money behind it so it was we were looking for any way of creating exposure for our brand social media facebook instagram was the options or the mediums we had access to actually one of my staff members at my salon molly we actually asked her to start doing some posts for us on facebook she ended up being with bondi for up until last year wow. so she came across with into bondi and really became she really almost built the australian voice and that voice of Bondi. So that was the first of experience of social media was Molly posting and she was able to get that voice coming through into our social media. Then we were working with a PR agency here in, in Melbourne and we were starting to get presented with social media, I guess, influencer opportunities, but they weren't they weren't what they are today. Mm. It was kind of like your traditional celebrities that had just a slightly higher following on, on Instagram. And we were presented with a, an opportunity with a, probably what you call like a C-grade celebrity, had a decent amount of followers. And we were actually presented with Steph Klesmith is the face of our brand still today. And at the time, the celebrity had half the followers Steph did, but was three times the cost. That light bulb just went off in that meeting. It was like, hang on a minute, there must be like more of these people. And we started thinking about why are these people buying into this person who isn't on TV, isn't on radio, isn't making movies. She was just this typical Australian beach girl, healthy lifestyle, all that. It was something that people that looked at as just like them and saw her as an everyday person, and but they really aspired to be like her. That was, we thought was the best way to connect to our consumers. And I suppose people were looking at influencers at that time as not being paid. So the message was a lot more organic. Yeah than what it is probably today with, with some influencers. Off the back of that, we, we wanted Steph to be the face of our brand. We felt like she was everything we wanted Bondi to be in a person, even to the point where we even name our magnetic customer <laughs> is Steph. Um, <laughs> but if you took Steph to the world and they would connect with she was Australian, that was that, that positioning of the brand we wanted to have. So from there, we that was when we really started to build out that influencer model and trying to work with more influencers. But Steph was obviously the face of our brand and always has been. But we also, I think we approached in a very different way to most of our competitors. We're very strict with who we work with. And unless they are actually a brand fan and they use Bondi and they want to use Bondi over anything else, then we don't want to work with them. And that was something we were very strict on two years in when we probably didn't have the right to be that picky. We'd have influencers that come to us and say, oh, such and such brands offered me this much. And my response was pretty much, well, if that's the case, go work with them. And we took that stance and a lot of the time these people would come back. It's more difficult to be like that now because there's obviously so many influencers out there looking for more and more work and there is some crossover, but we do try to insist that there's a quiet period around our relationships from one brand to another. And we like long-term engagements. We like to work with people for three, six, nine, 12 months, yeah. not individual posts. It's been a bit of backlash about influencers and the way that a lot of what they're doing at the moment or some people are doing can come across as not very authentic and there's the whole thing about needing to identify when it's an ad and when it's not and Instagram changing algorithms and taking away likes. Has that had any impact? It has, I think, in terms of the way we work with influencers. We haven't really seen any negative impact on it and I think it comes back to the way we've always approached it. We believe that any influencer that's aligning with a brand for a long period of time trusts that brand. 
then if they they have that alignment with the brand, they understand the intricacies inside and out. And they're not selling. We're not using. We don't particularly want to be using these influencers to be selling our product. It's more about educating around how to use the product. And if a consumer is, or a follower on Instagram is looking at these people and they're talking about Bondi, it's a credible message because they want to align with us and we want to align with them. All these influencers, we try to bring them as close to the brand as we possibly can. And I think it's about yeah, creating that, that credible message. And I think that's worked very well for us. Yeah, occasionally there will be criticism. I'm sure not everybody's always happy. But as a whole, we spend a lot of time curating the people that we surround our brand with. We talk a lot about the Bondi squad. When we launch a product, we turn to the people that have been with us for years. Steph Glessmith, Sharni Grimmond, even Charlotte Crosby from Geordie Shaw in the UK. We've been working with her for five years. So it's almost now when we launch a product, our consumers are almost, oh, let's go see what Charlotte has to say because she's a Bondi person. And that's how we want our influencers to be seen as Bondi people because we do bring them into the brand. So what's next for the brand? This year, focus on international expansion even further. We've had a successful launch in the US last year. Became the number one brand within our partner in, with Walgreens in the US. So that was a good start. Germany is a new country we've moved into. We're looking to strengthen our positioning there. Sun care is a big direction for the brand now and people think, oh yeah, it's, it's a smart decision now to move into that. But if you look back at our very first presentations with our distributor, Sun care was on that map from day one. So we believed our positioning fits well into Sun care. We were able to build the self-tan category to what it is based off innovation, pushing new products, pushing boundaries. And we're looking to do the same thing with Sun care. And we do have something which is very different for Bondi coming mid-year. Can't give too much away, but people won't expect it from Bondi, I don't think. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited about wow. this one. Wow, yeah. sounds great. Nice yeah. little tease there. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely on trend with what's going on in the world today. Okay. But as a brand, I think we're, we're trying to be more than just a, a brand that sells product. One of our values is that we build confidence. So we're looking at a lot of our channels and making sure how do we get that message across to people that feel confident in themselves and looking at eco-friendly directions. How can we make our formulas better? That's a big task for us. Looking at how we repackage items to make sure that we're having the least impact on the environment as possible. We're in a strange, not a strange place. It's heading in, a, in a, I think, in a good direction in terms of all the change that's happening, and that's where I think where a lot of this chaos comes from. But yeah. there's so much change going on. But we're trying to do everything with can as a brand to do the right thing interestingly you talked before about originally coming from flowerdale and i it made me think i worked at the coroner's court for a long time working with the victims of the 2009 black saturday fires yep I wondered, is Bondi involved in any support for the bushfire? Yeah, we're so fund? it was interesting. I have a, a view on charity or donations or aligning with that. Where uh, I saw a post on Instagram, someone put up like, "Yeah, leave the camera behind." Me doing charity work, and that's something that, as a brand, our team shares that view. If you're talking about it too much, it becomes marketing, and then that's not charity anymore. Bit of background: the Black Saturday fires. I know them very well. They went through Flowerdale, the house I mentioned before that my mum and dad built, and was completely destroyed, and knew a few people through that area that had lost their lives and, and you know, really the lives been turned upside down from the Black Saturday fires. So at that time, I wasn't in a position to really help that much. So this year with this fire, we, I guess there's, there's a personal agenda there as well, why we want to help. When the fires first started in, in November, we did donate some money to the RSPCA to help the wildlife. It was only $20,000 that we did back then. We followed that up this year with a $100,000 donation that was split between a wildlife charity and the Red Cross. And then off the back of that, just felt like throwing money at a situation was, you know, if we could do more. So we created our reuse to rebuild campaign. 
So we partner with a company called Frank Green. They make reusable keep cups and, and water bottles and we created a custom product with them. So we wanted to create something that was sustainable, reusable. There's no branding on these products, not a Bondi product. There's just a little Blue Australia map on, on the bottles. We started selling those. We now open that up to brands to work with us. So we don't care if you're a competing brand or you're a non-competing brand, we can all sell this product. So it was amazing. I reached out to the founder of Model Co, who's probably one of our arch rivals. <laughs> and I'm sure we both had many conversations about how much we hate the other brand. <laughs> but you know, to her credit, Shelly replied to my email straight away saying, yes, I want to get involved. We've made contact with the guys at Barley Body. Again, Suncare competitor, but we're going to work together on this platform. Mm-hmm. Everything that's happened with the fires is going to take... It's going to go well past once the fires are out and the media coverage stops. It's like rebuilding those lives is going to take a long time. So we want to make sure we've got consistent income coming in from this. So all proceeds of these cups go through to the Red Cross. And we're going to encourage more and more brands to get on board with us and, yeah, push that movement. Australian brands are so well received overseas. And so many of our brands have profited off this Australian positioning. It's extremely powerful positioning and it, it does separate us from our competitors. So we all owe to give something back. Obler, not to bring you back to a sad place, <laughs> but I really think your parents could only be so proud of everything that you've achieved and what you've done at such a young age and in such a short period of time after overcoming so much is really incredible. And I do hope you take moments where you sit there and think, I'm actually doing really well. Thanks. I Probably not enough, but I, I, yeah, I enjoy, I guess, pummeled into me since I was a kid but just moving on to the next bit now yeah. a few friends say to me like take the time to enjoy it and whatever it's like yeah but I enjoy the creation of the next thing that, yeah. that's where I get my enjoyment not necessarily looking back on what we've done that's where that happiness comes from well you're doing incredible things where can people get in touch with you if they want to on Instagram that's probably most people contact me LinkedIn as well yep. yeah they're probably the two channels where people, if they want to reach out or I meet with quite a lot of entrepreneurs you know, starting out, just wanting advice or just wanting to feedback on their product or whatever. And I actually really enjoy that. It's one of the things I enjoy the most. So most people who contact me want to talk about it. I'm like, yeah, sure. Blair, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and being really vulnerable as well as sharing some of the great things that you've achieved so far. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been enjoyable. Now, don't forget to leave us a rating or a review if you're listening on iTunes and follow us on socials at The Curious Life Podcast. And links to Blair's socials can be found in the show notes.